the vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. And off I went with two suitcases and some bed sheets and a couple of pots and pans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Dyson House podcast, a place to discuss the past, present and future of our international world and how to break into the fields that will change it. I'm your host, Peter Bateman. We're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. My guest today joined us via Skype all the way from Beirut, Lebanon, where he's stationed as the ABC's Middle East correspondent. Matt Brown is a four-time Walkley Award winner. That's basically Australia's version of the Pulitzer. And he's essentially had my dream job for the past decade, reporting from the front lines in places like Gaza, Syria, and Iraq. It takes a little while to get into the details of what it's like to be Matt Brown, but his stories will surely inspire the next generation of correspondents out there. It was an absolute pleasure to host him, so please enjoy Life as a Middle East Correspondent with Matt Brown. With me today, my guest is joining us all the way from Beirut. He's the ABC Middle East Correspondent and uh, one of Australia's greatest journalists, Matt Brown. Matt, <laughs> thanks for joining you've us. Al- you've already got me to agree to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those that don't know, now they know anyway. You're now a, a multi-award winning journalist. You've been doing this for over 25 years. And I just wanted to know... What made you decide that you wanted to become a journalist? Kind of my girlfriend, really, in high school. I kind of bounced between, I mean, I did my work experience in high school at a surfboard factory and was wondering about carpentry, which I was terrible at. But I was really good at English and everything. So, you know, look, I had no idea, frankly, but my girlfriend wanted to be a journalist. And so I just kind of thought, well, that was pretty cool. She taught me how to read Shakespeare and to like it. So I just followed on from there. Was, was foreign correspondence anything that was uh, in your mind at the start there, or is it just sort of really just following your girlfriend at the time? Yeah, well, the, yeah, the kind of journalism popular, this was in the mid-'80s. You know, there was still a bit of romance uh, about foreign correspondence or about, you know, reporting internationally. So, yeah, that was definitely a part of it. There was an, a, an allure of, of adventure there. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I'm not sure if that romance has disappeared. Maybe some of the jobs have. But anyway, moving on, our listeners are primarily interested in the international side of reporting, um, as we were sort of just touching on there with the the romance of the role of the foreign correspondent. So I wanted to sort of jump ahead or one of your earliest assignments, overseas assignments to Papua New Guinea. Can you just give us a little bit of a background and what your role was back then? I'd been... Uh, I'd finished my communications degree at the University of Technology in Sydney and was sort of reading the news on the weekends at Triple J and I'd already done a bit of work in the media while I was at uni at Radio 2GB uh, in Sydney, talk radio show in the mornings and yeah, I was just freelancing uh, at Radio National. I'd done one documentary for background briefing on Fiji and was hunting around for another one so we were we were kicking around the back streets of Sydney, talking to all manner of uh, activists, you know, people interested in our region. Bougainville, the civil conflict on Bougainville, had been pretty big for a number of years at that time. This is like 1992. And in the course of talking about that, you know, we learned about uh, an Australian aid project out of the aid budget, which was training Papua New Guinean police in very important things like case management, forensic work, that kind of thing, but an element of it had been used, quite a lot of money, to train the mobile squads, which are kind of like a SWAT team, but 
not much like a SWAT team. And that had gone off the rails. And there were some very serious concerns about what they were doing and, and their involvement in human rights abuses on the mainland of Papua New Guinea, as well as their involvement in the conflict in uh, Bougainville. Okay, fair enough. And so what was your experience like when you were actually over there? Well, we, I mean, we were still sort of semi-students. I hadn't graduated at that point, but we, you know, we were, we were journalists. So we identified ourselves as, you know, students and journalists and that we were doing a story we hoped to sell to the ABC. And it was quite amazing. We, you know, using some contacts that we made in Australia and then branching out up there, we basically, I mean, in Australia, we got hold of a government report, a secret government report, if you like, that had box and dice on the problems with this aid project, a very, very serious problems, including possible breaches of the Papua New Guinea constitution. So we used that as our bit of a template, but we, were, we went around Papua New Guinea investigating some elements of the program there. We went around Port Moresby. We went to... The slums of Port Moresby, we discovered that an Australian aid advisor had been involved in shooting to death a Papua New Guinean gang member to save the lives of people. But it was a very interesting concept within the aid project was when this person was a police advisor and when did they become an individual citizen? Um, There are all sorts of questions about that. And we went up to the highlands of Papua New Guinea where the mobile squads had been accused of some fairly serious violations as well as possible human rights violations. So you came back back to Australia after this. You, you still hadn't graduated yet. What was the next step? Did, did, you, did, you, did you get a taste for foreign correspondence after that? Yeah, look, sure, I wanted to do that, but what I wanted was a job. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and they weren't easy to come by there were no cadetships at that point it was a strange period uh, at the ABC there were cadetships of course in newspapers but um, there were no cadetships at the ABC so you just had to somehow crack through so yes I wanted to do uh, I would love to be a foreign correspondent but you know, and I, and I think this in general what you need to do before you're a foreign correspondent is just try and be a good journalist yeah. And I continued to read the news at Triple J on the weekends, did a bit of that uh, sort of work, did a couple more stories for background briefing, because that story, the Papua New Guinea one, it it was shortlisted for the Walkleys of that year, which was a pretty good thing. You know, we were I was 23, yeah, I think. Um, my colleague, Stephen McDonnell, who went on to be a very distinguished ABC correspondent and is now working for the BBC in Beijing, he, he and I did that story together. So we were, you know, we were kicking around in share, share houses in Sydney <laughs> trying to scrape together beer money and the rent and, uh, and get, our, you know, get our leg into journalism somehow. So eventually I saw an ad on the internal ABC computer system, which was a, a big old mainframe with an orange screen, you know, uh, <laughs> back in the day kind of like some kind of old video game. And it, it was an advertisement for a job in a one-person newsroom in Albany in Western Australia. So I went for it and got it. And off I went with two suitcases and some bed sheets and a couple of pots and pans. <laughs> Sounds like a bit of an adventure. Uh, how, it was. It was great. So how long, is it, how long was it from then until you were appointed, you had your first position as the, the Middle East correspondent for ABC? Yeah, well, that was 
1990, it's stretching my memory now, 1994, <laughs> when I got that first actual job at the ABC, and I didn't get posted until 2005. Okay. So 11 years, or give or take. I'd gone, I think, for five or six postings by that time and been rejected. Yeah. So, you know, it didn't come easy. And I'd sort of, I'd moved around, you know, I'd gone from radio news in Albany to radio current affairs, the programs AM, PM and the World Today in Perth, back to back to that program unit in Sydney, spent six months in Canberra, gone back to background briefing for a time. So all of that time I'm building up, you know, experience in different mediums, short, you know, radio news, longer radio current affairs, back to radio documentaries. I then went to Four Corners as a researcher and spent a couple of years there, ended up producing one or two stories, but really the reporters at Four Corners are so good that I didn't know what I was doing and they were they were showing me. Uh, and then I went back down to Canberra for Late Line very briefly. That turned into the 7.30 report and then back to Radio Current Affairs in Canberra on AM, PM and the World Today, you know, sort of doing the, the political stories of the day. Uh, and then that's when I got the job in Jerusalem. So it was a long journey, but I think an important one. I think it's really important to have a good grounding in a range of different uh, formats and also to have that exposure to different types of journalism investigations, spot news, you know, daily news. And also I think political reporting is very useful, not mandatory, but it's very useful because there's a lot of very, very intense scrutiny on what you do when you do political reporting and the people that you report on are very powerful and they're in your face every day. You know, you can't say something uh, tough about someone and then run off. You have to go in that next day and front up to them and defend your work and have defensible reports and conclusions. So I think that's not crucial, as I say, but I think it's very useful to do when you're when you're doing foreign reporting. Fair enough. And so you think all these different aspects of journalism that you did on the different radio shows, the different sort of short documentaries and stuff, they all sort of helped to build your uh, competence as a foreign correspondent? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, for, for us, you know, newspapers are a bit different. But for us, you know, you have to, on a big story, uh, do two radio news, you know, 32 second voices. Uh, you have to do a three minute mixed radio current affairs package. You have to write and work with a camera operator usually to script and edit a TV news story. You have to then go live into the bulletins uh, to answer questions. And if they're spending a fair whack of money, then the TV current affairs programs like 7.30 will want you know something from you as well. So no one really has all of that in spades when they head out. We all learn a bit on the job. But um, that for an electronic media foreign correspondent, that's pretty much par for the course. And I, I kind of want to just ask you what it was like that first time being sent overseas, knowing that you're going to be living in a in another country, you're going to be reporting from that region, you're going to be spending a lot. You, you did move around a lot in Australia, but you're obviously going somewhere else with a completely different culture and a lot further away from your friends and family. Yeah, well, it was really daunting. As you say, you know, the, 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 the uprooting of your life. Um, my wife is also a journalist and um, was working in the press gallery at Parliament House in Canberra uh, for the Fairfax newspaper group and, you know, getting some pretty good stories on big issues, privatisation, telecom, Tel Telstra, that kind of thing, the Commonwealth Bank, lots of big stories. So it was a big 
sort of choice to uproot her career as well, which you know continues to be an issue. And yeah, getting into Jerusalem, which is where we were based at the time. Yeah, just trying to you know you've got an office there, uh, which we don't have now in Beirut. We've done away with some of that support, unfortunately. But back then we had an office. You know, we had a bureau. We had a bureau manager. Of course, you've got colleagues already working there. So you had some support to find a, you know, find a place to live. That kind of stuff was all not that difficult, really. But, yeah, then just getting your head into what would be a story and what's going to interest editors and audiences back home and then delivering those stories is, um, is the real task. And, you know, some people do come a cropper on that basic issue because there's no training in it of course you haven't had the experience there's not not much managerial guidance um, either it's kind of sink or swim I think that was the key thing is you know when there's a massive conflict or something happening like that it's pretty obvious but in between times and that's most of the time is in between times what do you do and how do you uh, how do you keep people interested in the region you sort of mentioned it is still a bit tough moving your wife and kids around but did it get easier as you as you went along? Like I know you, you had some time in Indonesia and then now you're in Beirut. Does it get easier to uproot and move or is it always just as difficult? Yeah, it gets easier. You get more used to the social isolation of being away from people you've known for a long time at home and you get used to that as a weird kind of expat experience of meeting people, forming friendships, knowing that you'll be leaving. And that, you know, with all of the will and all of the Skype and whatever in the world, uh, you're not going to, you know, you're really not going to remain bosom buddies the way you do when you when you live sort of with people and see them week in, week out. So, yeah, that, that does become easier. Um, we went from Jerusalem after four years back to Sydney for nine months, then to Jakarta two and a half years, then to Jerusalem again for three years, and then up here to Beirut where I've been now for a bit more than two and a half years. So, yeah, it becomes easier, um, but each each move has its tests. Each location has its difficulties. Like the reason I was late to our podcast today is trying to work out why there's now no electricity in my office <laughs> and all of my battery backups have gone flat and there's no internet. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Just moving forward, like there's obviously a lot of difficulties, as you said, about the social isolation, you're dealing with electricity going out. But what, what, are, what do you think is the most memorable part of the job, the, the moments that keep you in the job? I mean, for me, they're obviously being out of the office and out in the field. I think probably, to be honest, it's the unmediated nature of the reporting experience. So... You almost never deal with a PR person. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're nearly always dealing with real people. You're not having to go even, you know, very often through sort of government power structures, uh, that kind of thing. You know, I've, I think that people underestimate how difficult that is to actually do in a domestic reporting context. You know, I think that when you... People don't like to hear about the hardships of, of journalism because they just think journos are just parasitic whinges. Um, <laughs> you, you tend to get a little bit of a pass on that as a foreign correspondent because people assume the hardships have been in a different culture, et cetera, et cetera, or, or, the, or the, uh, the actual hardships of, of conflict or, uh, or the physical environment. But, you know, 
people who are kicking goals in domestic reporting are basically doing that despite everybody else involved in the news gathering process, you know, the the PR people, the powerful people, uh, whoever it is that they're dealing with, don't really want them to do it and aren't necessarily that friendly about it. And they're they're navigating through all of that. So, you know, foreign reporting has its, uh, its very great difficulties, but you don't have to deal with that dynamic very often at all. That, that's probably the thing I like most. That, that, in reality, that boils down to being in the back of a clapped-out old Mercedes uh, rolling down sandy paths in, you know, northwest Syria, having hiked illegally across the border with a warm breeze blowing off the mountains coming in the window and, uh, you know, cruising past olive trees and lemon trees and just thinking, yep, this is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like an amazing picture you're painting there. So that probably actually um, transitions pretty nicely into the, the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is I wanted to talk more specifically about what a foreign correspondent actually does, like from the day-to-day sort of aspect and, and in the macro as well. But first, what, you've kind of touched on this already, but what do you think makes a good foreign correspondent? I think a good journalist is a good foreign correspondent. I think, you know, curiosity about the world, resourcefulness and perseverance and obviously, you know, some modicum of storytelling ability to explain what's happening and to, to focus on what people are going to find interesting. But I, I think really it's the same as domestic reporting in most respects. I, I think if you're, if you're not going to be a good reporter where you come from, then you're not going to be a good reporter where you, you know, where you don't come from. So before you leave for the ass- an assignment... What's, what sort of preparations do you have to do you have to make? Like maybe if you could talk both when you're based somewhere and when you're being sent out. Yeah, so for example, if I'm in Beirut, um, I've got uh, an Australian cameraman here, which is you know not not the court, not the case for a lot of people around the world. Uh, but we've got an Australian cameraman here, and I have a local producer here who speaks because we're in Lebanon, speaks French as well as Arabic, and because she's clever, she speaks German as well, as well as English. So you've got a translator, people call them fixers or producers, and they are digging around for leads. So for the, at the moment, for example, there's a significant Syrian government assault on a rebel-held enclave east of Damascus called Ghouta, and it's not very far. It's a hop, skip, and a jump over the mountains here from Beirut. So we're presuming that There'd be a lot of refugees from Ghouta here in in Beirut. So I've got the producer trying to find some of them so that we can talk to them about their relatives, what's happening over in their old hometown, and try and develop a story like that. That would be something for 7.30. At the same time, we're using WhatsApp and Skype and all you know other sort of digital messaging services to contact people inside Ghouta. Uh, and ask them what's happening there and that's what I was doing yesterday and last night and you know together with interviewing some UN people it's very easy to do we put that together and we made you know a radio current affairs piece for this morning's AM program about the uh, the first aid delivery into that area since a ceasefire was demanded by the UN Security Council more than a week ago Uh, so that's a mix of you know trying to look ahead get something that we can film face-to-face using 
electronic communications to reach into the story which we can't be present at in, in East Damascus. We can't get there. That, that's basically, if you go through different permutations, that's basically what we do uh, all the time. So you're, you're, you're feeding, you know, the, the different outlets that want material daily, especially radio news, radio current affairs. I woke up this morning and we used agency material, which is the, the big news agencies, Reuters, the Associated Press, Television News. They're gathering together television pictures that are shot by activists in Ghouta, uh, shot by freelance cameramen that they employ in Damascus. And we've, you know, we put that together into a script. Uh, in this case, this morning, that script was written while I was asleep. It was written in Sydney, and I've simply put my voice to it and sent that through. In the course of 24 hours here, you know, in, in Beirut, we've filed for those different daily news outlets using a mix of those different sources for material. Um, that's pretty common. That's a, a fairly routine workday. At the same time, I'm researching people in Cairo, for example, because there are elections due there at the end of this month, and I need to try and find some interesting people to talk to to go and do that. So that's kind of my day, and it's pretty much like that every day. Oh, and I, I missed out sort of 9.30 at night. My time last night, I was doing like a live cross into the news channel's news breakfast program on the ABC. So that's, that's, a, that's a, usual, a usual day. Well, you mentioned Syria before that you um, illegally hiked over... You're in the back of a of an old Mercedes car going through the mountains. There must be some sort of element of fear when you when you take on these sort of assignments. How are you feeling at the time? Are you nervous at all? And does that nervousness go away once you're in there, or how does how does that work? Well, the after that moment I described being in the back of the Mercedes actually did happen. <laughs> and I was elated, really, just such a beautiful, beautiful dry air, hot day. It was Ramadan, unfortunately, so everyone was a bit uh, hypoglycemic <laughs> and uh, risk, risky driving off the road, but it was just a beautiful moment. Um, but in general, yes, you, you know, there is fear. Of course there's fear. You wouldn't be human if there wasn't. But there isn't a panic. And, you know, bear in mind, I mean, I really avoid being somewhere where there's immediate danger, if I can. I mean, we've done a lot of reporting under bombardment, that kind of thing. That's difficult. But... You know, if you hear gunfire, you don't don't really go there. For example, if you can, you know, if you avoid that kind of thing, I think my experience is pretty common when I read and talk to other people about there's. It's a common human experience when there's danger, and you're in a professional context. You know, everything's through a professional prism. So, prior to going, uh, we've found a translator. We've uh, got them to find a couple of drivers. We've tried to find somewhere to sleep the night. We've tried to discuss what we know about that environment, what's been happening there lately, who's in charge, what kind of militia is in charge, talking to other journalists, uh, other fixers apart from the fixer you're talking to, so you don't have this, uh, yes, come, come, it's fine, you're going to pay me a lot of US dollars and <laughs> I'm not really going to tell you how bad it is because I want you to come. Uh, that, you, know, you do a lot of that, so the sort of professional risk assessment process starts to put all of that in context to to both objectified and subjectified if you like you know it, whatever you, either way you look at it you're putting that outside of your fear factor and into an intellectual framework and the same thing goes when you're when you're rolling and you're on the road you know you're assessing the dangers of a particular region you're for example 
you know, stopping people coming the other way and asking them, you know, what they've just seen or in some cases what they're running away from. I, I don't have a lot of fear in those moments because you're running it through a security assessment sort of prism the whole time. Uh, and I think that's the same thing camera operators, for example, when they're filming terrible scenes. It might be a bus, bus crash on the road from um, Melbourne up to Canberra. Uh, or it could be something, you know, over here. Uh, they're focusing on the focus, the colour, the, you know, the contrast, getting it all framed properly, getting the right mix of shots so that it can be edited. And I think later on is when you sit back and experience a bit of fear in retrospect. When you're out of that environment, you think, oh, my God, that was pretty appalling. Um, that's when that's when it hits you most, I think, because afterwards... Yeah, for sure. It sounds pretty surreal just listening to you talk about it. Journalism as a profession, it's sort of in a bit of a, a state of flux at the moment. Uh, there's, I know a lot of the bureaus are sort of closing down. Do you think your role as a more traditional foreign correspondent, do you think those jobs are, are, are leaving the industry? And if so, where are the jobs heading? Well, yeah. I mean, the, the, the trend is bad and down. Um, I mean, you look, the Australian newspapers... Now, they used to have correspondents in Jerusalem. They don't. They've also thinned out their presence in Asia, which is really terrible. So if you look around the world, a lot of the foreign correspondents that exist in um, Western sort of media outlets, for want of a better term, they're from public broadcasters like the ABC. You've got the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC, of course, CNN, those sorts of outfits, they do what they do very well, um, but they also have a pretty limited footprint when you look around. They operate a lot more having extremely good local producers, like gun local journalists, basically, on staff, and they'll take material on air from them occasionally, but they're there to make sure that when there's something and they fly a crew in, you know, they're they're ahead of the game and not playing catch-up. So, yeah, it's pretty thin. I don't know. If, if you can predict the global media model for me even a year from now, let alone five years from now, um, I'd be interested. But I, I think it's not a good environment. And the terms and conditions have also been uh, made quite difficult for people. And, yeah, I think in your email to me, you mentioned, you know, talking about freelancing, which I'm obviously not very qualified to do, but I think that's there's a lot more freelancing going on and it's, it's as exploitative or more exploitative uh, than it's ever been. Speaking to those freelance journalists, how do, how do they say they get into that line of work? For example, have you, have you seen any in, in Iraq or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a mix, well, especially Syria. I mean, Syria was interesting and it's is partly it's the conflict that it has become because it had a long porous land border with turkey and you know transit was so easy from europe you know from europe through turkey and simply from turkey so everyone from foreign fighters to foreign journalists were able to uh, to get into that uh, arena relatively easy compared to other places you know you see freelancers who have standing relationships with outlets already so whether they've done work domestically for those outlets and then said look i'm heading off to x place 
um, or whether they just have managed to be uh, Jane or Johnny on the spot and, you know, get a bit of work somewhere and then turn that around into the next crisis, the next conflict. They have existing relationships with outlets. People who do that very well often also have an advantage. Someone, for example, might have done an entire degree in Arabic and Islamic studies. They might struggle still to speak the local um, version of Arabic, but they, they might be able to get by without spending significant sums of money on local translators' fixes and be able to you know, sell a cheaper product or make, actually make some money for themselves while they're out there taking all those terrible risks on their own shoulders working for these organisations. So they, they, you know, they developed uh, freelancers. What I saw in Syria a couple of times were people who really were, uh, I mean, I don't want to disparage them because they were, you know, bringing an important story, obviously, to some audience somewhere, but they were a bit like war tourists with a video camera, um, not a lot of professional ethos and sort of blowing through, getting some frontline footage for a couple of days and then blowing back out again and really kind of selling the footage based on, you know, the the amount of gunfire in it, essentially. Um, I did see a bit of that, and it's really very, very dangerous. It's not great journalism, but it's really dangerous for those people, and the organisations, I think, that are doing that with them are exploiting them very badly. Do they get much reward for that risk? No. No, they no. don't. And, I mean, like, you know, you can tell I've got a fairly sort of conservative view in terms of workplaces and work practices. Um, I don't think really they also make their big career move by doing it either. You know, I think those organisations exploit those people for that purpose and that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, bingo, you get taken on as a staff reporter and then get made a correspondent. You 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 get <laughs> sucked dry. I mean, I, what's happened during the period I've been reporting overseas is we've started to make more use of security consultants. So when I go somewhere where there is a known risk of, you know, death or injury from explosions, for example, I mean, I'm sort of boiling it down, somewhere like Raqqa or somewhere like Mosul, we'll take one guy and usually, you know, they're, they've former army person, but the value they have is that they are trained medics. It's only one extra person, and if a bomb goes off, they may well be just one extra person to have to, to cope with who's been injured. But they have, you know, they have proper medical training, and it's, they're certified. And we've started doing that fairly regularly. There are patches where you don't quite know, does the, does the conflict or the risk meet the threshold to spend that amount of money? But these freelance people, they've not been supported in that way, usually. Some are, but usually they're not being supported even in that way. I mean, that's just one extra guy with a medical kit, not going to do a lot for you, really. But at least we've got that. And I see a lot of these people out there operating by themselves without that level of support at all. And then, you know, you go deeper into it, the risk of kidnap, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they're just not, they're not covered by these organisations, which... Even if they're small, relatively poor media organisations, you know, are still talking about big bickies in their operating budgets generally, and yet they're they're allowing these people to take risks on their behalf and not looking after them properly. Yeah, it doesn't sound like the best situation, Matt. Unfortunately, we're fast approaching our time limit. I could talk to you 
all night over here and all day over in Beirut about the job that you do and the, the places that you've been. Uh, I did want to ask you one last question, though. Just for all of the aspiring Matt Browns out there, all of the aspiring foreign correspondents <laughs> who are on their way through uni or maybe just graduated, what are some tips you can give them or things that they should be they should be doing right now to give them any chance to have a, have a life as uh, fulfilling as you've lived? Start working. That's basically it. I I think you know how you think about the world, what you know about the world, all of those things are very important. But, you know, in my degree, in our first year, we had to be having, you know, radio stories published. I think my radio journalism course, you had to have 10 radio stories broadcast to pass that course. So, of course, you went to the student radio station and, you know, worked on the morning radio show. I mean, and, uh, you, you could have gone off and freelance a wonderful story to the ABC or someone if you, you know, if you had that in you. But, of course, we didn't. Just beginning from that premise you know, that journalism is a craft. It's a profession that's been professionalised by all these degrees and all this stuff, but it's a craft. It's about doing things. It's about talking to people, turning what they tell you into a, a story that is relatable and getting it out over different different mediums. The quicker you get into doing that and doing it uh, for real, then the better off you'll be. And I think that's crucial. I, I was working, as I say, at university you know, making the coffee and answering the open line uh, talkback radio when I was 20. And, I, and that was really important for me even just to get a start in the industry. So I think start working and have plan A, B and C because, like I say, I got knocked back five or six times before I even got one of these jobs. So it could have just as easily been knocked back seven or eight times and never happened. I think you've got to really love it and be into it and, and committed to it. All right. Well, we might have to leave it there, Matt. Thank you so okay. much for your time. No worries, anybody, anybody who's interested in Matt's stories, post them on his Twitter account, I believe. Is it at ABC yeah, Matt? Yeah, I'm, I'm ABC Matt on Twitter. And real and ABC course, Matt on Instagram? Yeah, and ABC Matt Brown on Facebook. But main outlets, of course, your ABC, uh, ABC News, and yeah, you'll find us there. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much for coming on the Dyson House podcast. No worries. Thank you. Good luck with the podcast too. Thank you very much. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts from. Subscribe, like, and share us and follow us on Twitter at Dyson House. That's D-Y-A-S-O-N House. So you don't miss an episode. We'll be out every Thursday night. If you live in Melbourne, be sure to check out the AAA Victoria's website at www.internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria where you can sign on to become a member and get discounted events and access to our academic journal as well as see all of our upcoming speaking events at Dyson House. In June, we'll have some experts coming to discuss Russiaphobia and the consequences of the Iran deal fallout. Up next on the podcast, we have former Brigadier Richard Iron to discuss counterinsurgencies, drawing on his impressive military history and experience in Northern Ireland, Sierra Leone, and the role he played in the famous Battle of Basra in Iraq. Thanks again for listening. I'm Peter Bateman. Until next time.